You're listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. Both of us are on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. If you would like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Again, currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. And we'll be answering questions at the end of every episode. Um, Today's episode is going to be 10 Theses on Biblical Sexuality. And here in a second, I'll kick it over to Wade to uh, explain why we're doing this. Um, But 10 Theses on Biblical Sexuality. So yeah, I'll go ahead and push it over to Wade and you can get us started. What you got for us today? All right. Well, Michael's just published a... uh, Pretty impressive graphic novel on... I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. You can't resist. I know, I can't. All right, so I here's can't. the... Uh, yeah. Can so you hear that, dear listener? That is 327-ish. Okay, uh, let's see. If I'm you include this. the append or the uh, index, it's 316. That is 316. That's pretty close. 316 pages of godly counsel on manhood and womanhood. just came out. Um, it's endorsed by Owen... Uh, Strachan, Strayan, Strayan. I think the CH is silent. Right. Owen's Owen's a very well known. Uh, I mean, and a, and a good guy. Uh, C. R. Wiley, who is one of our favorites here um, at Christ the King Church, and Megan Basham, who's who's done some great work on the SBC and uh, works for the Daily Wire. So endorsed by three heavy hitters. Oh, and Michael Foster. Um, I forgot about that. Just because he's. He's a friend of He's ours. He's a friend of ours, and so it feels a little... I, I sometimes forget about him because he just doesn't exist in that same space in my mind as the others. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in some ways, might be the heaviest hitter, I guess, of the four. He's got he's got name recognition, yeah. for sure. Um, and so, point being, it's a serious book. It's, it's written in a very serious way, but Michael also um, communicates without uh, needless, tactless... Uh, you know, spoiling for a fight. Like it's written in a pretty sober way. And so I think it'll benefit a lot of people, but because that book just came out and because, uh, the tweet that you sent out the other day went viral, which like you even, even asked, he asked a few of us like, Hey, what do you guys think about this? And I'm like, that's fine. That's totally fine. It's normal. I, I, I sent the, the, the message yeah. of the tweet. It was like five little short paragraphs. Yeah. I sent it to Wade. I sent it to, uh, the other elder at my church and mm-hmm. one other leader. I sent it to those guys. I'm like, Hey guys, I want to, post this on Twitter, you know, any thoughts, feedback, and all the guys were like, nope, no, looks great, good, man. Yeah, throw it out there. 750,000 views later. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, this is not... And it wasn't even trollish. No, it's not even <laughs> yoga pants gate. I mean, this is like, this was pretty normal stuff. But because that was recent, and then the book uh, just came out, and then also, thirdly, I guess I should say, because these issues matter, the, the moment we're in is a moment of... Sexual confusion. We're here in the middle of June, which is uh, to to the pagan world Pride Month. Yeah. Because of all that, we figured let's let's do a, a sort of off the cuff improv kind of conversation on biblical sexuality, biblical gender. Um, so we're gonna have ten theses, ten statements of truth that we'll dissect here and talk about a little bit. But first, our taste of crazy comes from the comments section of your. Am I saying it right? Do you call it comments on Twitter, or do you call it uh, your mentions or your replies? Mm. I'm, Okay. I'm not sure. I'm the, still learning the Twitter world. I'm not sure the correct nomenclature. With all but. of my 102 followers that are, <laughs> I'm sure, just on the edge of their seat for my social commentary. Yeah, I'm still fairly new to Twitter, but I, these are from the 
the things that came to you after you said normal stuff. Yeah. Well, should I read it? I was just thinking I could read what I... It would probably be helpful just so people, in case this is your first episode or when you're still early on in the listens here, I don't want you to think that Michael said some crazy, obnoxious, you know, yeah. thing. It, it was a pretty normal take on why, on on some of the negative consequences of women being pastors and why it is self-evident that they should not be pastors in addition to the, the Bible just simply saying they shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah, um, yeah. go ahead, read it, and then I'll, I'll read some of the, the beauties, some of the gems that came after. Okay. Um, this is what I said on Twitter, quote, The pastorate is a masculine office. Here's why. Pastors who speak the truth of Scripture boldly are putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of God's people. Godly pastors run towards this danger, not away from it, because that's how you protect the sheep. A faithful pastor will be regularly exposed to public ridicule and slander. Ha, <laughs> uh, Comments uh, mm-hmm. forthcoming. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't complain. He should expect it. This is what he signed up for. This is why, among many reasons, women are not called to be pastors. It is glorious for a man to embrace public scorn for the sake of truth, because doing so aligns with his God-given masculine disposition. But women have a different feminine disposition and a different glory to pursue. By nature, women are more risk-averse and more likely to shrink from danger. This is because God made women to protect the potential for new life that exists within their own bodies. Thus, it is in the nature of women to run from danger. In most cases, it need not be considered cowardly for women to do so, because it is not in the nature of women to run towards danger. But for men, it is. To face and overcome a terrible threat thrills the heart of a man. Men of old dreamed of dying gloriously in a worthy battle for those he loves. Uh, Two more paragraphs here. This is why you can't appoint a woman to the office of pastor without fundamentally changing the office. Women take a dangerous calling and make it safer. Since the primary danger of the pastoral office entails guarding the truth, biblical authority is the first casualty when women become pastors. Women are well-equipped to serve the church in a number of ways, but not as pastors. This is a masculine office and masculine calling. Godly men should do the dangerous work of shepherding souls, and godly women should neither seek nor desire it. That's it. Yeah, so we could all try to figure out, okay, which sentence in that would have uh, triggered the the mob. Well, I I think the thing that triggered the one thing I saw the most comments about was the idea of embracing danger because mm. there was a lot of people that said things of the sort of well pregnancy is one of the most dangerous things a person could do um, or I know a woman once who right. uh, did this or that or most of the missionaries in foreign countries and like Muslim countries that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, and so anecdotes, about women doing dangerous things. And, and I didn't say that women are incapable of courage. Um, but even even when you speak precisely in a forum like Twitter, you're going to get a lot of misunderstanding, hyperbolic responses. The medium just lends itself right. to that. So this is an example of, I think, the dry rot of feminism. And I'm going to read some of these comments in a second, so forgive me, dear listener, for you know, monologuing here for a second, but I think, it. It, I think it's beneficial. Feminism has created a world in which a woman who does not uh, 
demonstrate physical courage in the case of physical danger or is on the front lines of, you know, metaphorical danger, that woman is defective because feminism hates actual femininity. It hates the things that the scriptures hold up as as examples of great feminine virtue like Ruth. Mm. It has contempt for Ruth and it really just wants women who are snipers and women who are firemen and women who are that black widow it wants masculine women and so now if you know if you were to say that a particular guy doesn't have if you were to say a particular man doesn't have some feminine virtue or doesn't isn't called to ex, uh you know embody this feminine virtue there there wouldn't be really much of a reaction but if you say a woman is not called to and probably does not have the same quantity of a particular masculine virtue like physical courage. Yeah. The world shuts down yeah. because it wants women to be men. Feminism wants women to be men. It wants women to be masculine. Yeah, and I think feminism is ashamed of femininity. Yes, correct. It's so, ashamed of your great-grandmother who bore a bunch of children and raised them up and submitted to her husband and lived a quiet, peaceable life and was gentle and God-fearing and tough in a feminine way, but not mm-hmm. going out into the world to fight battles. It's ashamed of her. Yeah. Yeah. A feminine strength is not the same as a masculine Correct. strength. It is not the absence of strength. It is not the absence of courage. So there were people like, well, women in the early church were martyrs, um, right. that sort of thing. And I'm like, of course, you know, but it is like men throw themselves into the danger. Right. They are... Seeking it, uh, not seeking, not thrill seeking. I mean, I, they are willing to assert something to speak a truth that they could have just as easily have avoided, in order to, uh, for the sake of the truth and for the sake of upholding the value of that truth. That uh, women don't have the same calling to do that. Um, women may do that, but it is you don't require women to do that by making them pastors. Right, and that's that was the point I was making. But because there are examples of exceptions to that, but that's what offended some people. But what's interesting is that um, when you have women who um, lose, well, I lost my train of thought. So let me just let me just pause there and yeah, you can I, so pick it up. From maybe here. this will help. Scripture normalizes Ruth and makes allowances for Deborah. Feminism wants to normalize Deborah mm-hmm. and say. And pat Ruth on the head and say, we know, yes, you can be a Ruth too if you want. But Deborah, yeah. it wants to hold up, you know, uh, was it Jael who who killed the Sisera? It wants to hold, they say, Here's, this is what it really is. And yeah, sure, if you want to raise some kids and take care of a household, fine. Whereas scripture does the inverse. Scripture yeah. says women should be workers at home, managing their households, Submitting to their husbands, loving yeah. their children. Like this is the language of the epistles, but it's also the flavor of godly womanhood in the, in the narratives. Mm-hmm. That's the norm. And once in a while, God will use this exception to the norm. Yeah. Feminism does the opposite. It flips it on its head. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a comment here and then we can yeah, go to the comments. But, um, I remembered what I was going to say a moment ago. It is the, when you look at women in the aggregate, um, like the the nature of women what are women generally like women generally would want a man to protect her if she were in danger and yet when you when i say a tweet like this then you it turned 
women want to turn it around. I'm like, well, I know all kinds of women that go to go into danger or that would face dangerous things. But if you, but if you just say like, what is the nature of a woman? What are women generally like? Mm-hmm. Women generally are not going to want to. Hey, let me just leave my doors unlocked at night. Right. Let me just you know um, walk down a dark alley by myself in the middle of the night. Women don't do that, and it's not a defect, right? It is. It is not a defect. It is. It is. She is protecting herself, correct? Because she is more vulnerable, and it is virtuous and courageous and good for a man to look out for women in vulnerable situations, not stick up for a woman's right to do something dumb like walk down the middle of a dark alley in the middle of the night, right? I think I wouldn't say women should have every every, every right to do that, right? Let's praise and celebrate women who do these things. I'm like, no, that's. That is celebrating putting women, putting women in harm's way, right? And that it just it it doesn't it, it doesn't jive with what we know to be true of women, but that's the problem in this in the modern environment we're in. We can't see what's there, right? We can't see the reality. We're not allowed to just acknowledge the way things are. We're supposed to pretend like like men and women are identically interchangeable, except for the most obvious ways. And so. Because uh, feminism has, you know, in one form or another, been enshrined in our the the American cultists. Let me read some of the comments here that were uh, slung at you. In I mean, by the thousands, probably hundreds. Um, uh, what the number of comments? Yeah, I mean, um, I, not not in the thousands. Okay, but um, the comments were we're still early in the eight hundred eight hundred. So I just looked it up. So I've got these stats. So the the post was viewed 749,000 times. Um, there were 815 comments. Mm. So I got ratioed. Um, if listeners don't know what that means, ratioed means that you get more comments than likes on your post. Yeah, which I told Michael is like getting shouted down at a college campus. Really all it tells you about is the emotional state of the mob you have to trigger. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, okay. First one here that this is parody, right? Question mark, question mark. Being a pastor in America is one of the safest professions. And men have ensured that by excluding women who would challenge them to be better men, women are also called to be fearlessly, are also called to fearlessly speak truth. And I've seen them do it better than men. Let me piece by piece here, just a few comments. Being a pastor in America is one of the safest professions. Uh, They're not getting slaughtered. So if your definition of safe is, uh, they don't physically die on the job because of the job, mm-hmm. then, yeah, it would probably be up there with, like, CPA. And yeah. uh, it's not deep-sea crab fishermen. But it's not true in the norm- the normal way we would use the word safe. Um, normally, when you say the word safe, it, in- it embodies more than just physical trauma right. and blood loss. Normally, it, it means a variety of other things. And being a pastor, I have seen up close. My father was one. Uh, now my best friend is one. Uh I've had very close friends who have been in the ministry for a long time. They get their reputations uh, tarnished. They get falsely accused. Um, Their families get a lot of times uh, maligned. Mm -hmm. And this one is the one that is really discounted here in this statement. They get spiritually attacked uh, incredibly. Yeah. Uh, Hell hates pastors. Yeah, for sure. And so the spiritual attack is real. So that... uh, Basically, there I would say you 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 hollowed out the word safe, or she, the person commenting here, hollowed out the word safe. 
because by doing that, she could say, see, see, it's. Yeah. And what I would, I would add to that one, the thing that came to mind when I first saw that comment was you've changed the job description from a biblical job description, which if you look at the texts of scripture that talk about, you know, like, like Paul and I think it's second Corinthians 11, when Mm -hmm. he's talking about all the dangerous things he endured, the, the metaphorical language throughout scripture is warfare, warfare, warfare. So if you change the job description of a pastor and you domesticate it, you make it more, well, he's more of a therapist. He's more of a counselor. He gives TED Talks. Uh, he or she, mm-hmm. you know, as the case may be in this in this uh, comment, um, you, if you domesticate and change the job description. So it's like saying, well, a CEO of a company is, you know, sitting on a couch and, you know, doing, you know, emotional support for your employees. Right. That's not dangerous. What's the risk there? It's like, well, you've redefined what the job is into a safer description. And that's exactly what I think this woman has done. She's like, of course, like, of course, uh, being a pastor is a safe job whenever your definition of pastor is one that is the definition of it is feminine and risk averse and safety conscious. That's a a good, that's a good um, reminder there. If anyone's interested, a few biographies of pastors that will underscore some of the spiritual, emotional, uh, and in some cases, physical danger that can go into being a pastor. Ian Murray's Martin Lloyd-Jones biography. I mean, I've got in my mind as you're talking, the there's a famous part of that biography where Martin Lloyd-Jones is standing in the pulpit during the blitz and there's a bomb that gets dropped on a building not too far away. And I think if I remember right, it's like ash or uh, dust falls from the ceiling, you know, because wow. the bomb sh- and he just keeps right on preaching. <laughs> uh, it's just, that's a great example. There's many others, but that's a great book. Um, William Grimshaw of Haworth by, I can't remember the woman's name, but if you just search that on Amazon, um, she, she, it was a book put out by Banner of Truth. That's a great biography of a pastor. Uh, even Peter Brown's biography of Augustine, which I just finished, is a great one. So that if you read a biography of a real biblical pastor, you'll see it's not a safe job, really in any sense of the word, but certainly not a spiritually and relationally safe job. It comes yeah. with all kinds of cost. Um, second sentence here in this one, she said, and men have ensured that by excluding women. So technically, I guess that's literally true, but it's a language game. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of language game that got played with Obergefell when people said, you want to exclude gay people from marriage. Right. I guess technically you could say that's literally true in a sense, but it's actually communicating something false. First of all, it in that case, it assumes that there is such a thing as a gay man, which I would dispute. I would say there's a man committing homosexual sin. But secondly, no, you've changed the definition of marriage and said that because I won't change the definition to include two men, yeah. I've excluded this kind of human. No gay man, if I even grant that such a person exists, was excluded from marriage. He could marry any woman he wanted to who was of age and wanted to marry him. Right. What he wanted was for the thing to be changed so that he could join it. And if you didn't change the things that he could join it, you exclude it. Mm -hmm. Similarly here, pastor is something God created. He crafted it. And so to woman pastor is sort of like pregnant man or two dudes being a marriage. You've, You've played word games to alter the thing God made and said that because I won't go along with your playing word games to change the thing that God made, I've excluded you from it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, there is no such thing as a woman pastor. Right. In in the sense that there is no woman that God has called Correct. to the office of elder. And we should make just that clarification. We're using the word pastor here to refer to the office of elder, which in my view, biblically speaking, elder, bishop, um, 
pastor, um, even overseer, overseer. Yeah. These these words are all describing the the same office. Yeah, um, and that is an office that is inherently a masculine office because it's the father of a church. Just like uh, you have to be a man to be a father in a home. Right. You have to be a man to be a father in the church, and the fathers of the church are the ones who exercise spiritual authority as pastors. And that's why I think you see where he in uh, in in the uh, prescriptions he gives to Timothy and Titus. He can say things like, must be a husband of one wife. Yeah. Because the question to him of, well, what about a woman pastor would have sounded to the Apostle Paul, I dare say, like the question to us, what about a pregnant, pregnant man? man. <laughs> like he would have said, did you, did you have a head injury just now? <laughs> right. But what about a, a spherical triangle? Like it, yeah. it doesn't exist. It's a nonsense statement. But the the particular comment that you read it presumes it, it, it is built upon this narrative of some people are oppressors and other people are oppressed. Yeah. It's a Marxist mindset right. that it, it, it it's subtly there, but it's like you're trying to exclude women from the office. So you are the oppressor, women are the oppressed, and you are you are playing this power game. So it's like you you it, it tell it's revealing very much about the individual who wrote the yes comment. exactly and that worldview that I, I'm going to call it a Marxist worldview, but if that if that scares you because you're like, oh my gosh, am I listening to like these crazy right-wing guys now? Okay, whatever you want to call it, this this worldview of dividing the entire population into oppressor and oppressed, whatever name you want to give it, that worldview weaponizes and incentivizes a sense of grievance. Yes, oh, absolutely. So my sense of grievance against you for your, whatever you supposedly excluded me from is now social capital for me. Mm-hmm. I get elevated yeah. Uh, an aggrieved victim is a powerful position now. In our society. In our society. Yeah. And that's now. a shame. Like that we want to genuinely protect genuine victims. But it's a shame that like just immediately claiming the status of victim has given the person the ultimate trump card. Yeah. It uh, it obscures true victimhood. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um uh, okay. So excluding women who would challenge them to be better men. Uh by the way, most of the men I know who are good men. Um, love being challenged by women to be made better men. Um, yeah. So that, I, I'm that right there is is a little bit nonsensical and of a straw man. Women are also called to fearlessly speak truth, um, and I've seen them do it better than men. So quickly, I'll say there, depending on the setting, I don't disagree that women can be called to fearlessly speak truth, but the the normative feature of a fearless vocal life that that's that's not feminine god did not call women to exhibit throughout their lives a an offensive like i'm going on the offense mm-hmm. valorous proclamation of the word sort of yeah virtue I, yeah so women I want to make sure nobody misunderstands what you're saying. Wade is not saying that women should not speak truth or should not do so boldly, should not do so courageously. It is like what what characterizes a person's life um, is is the sort of combat of against other people that 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 is usually the arena of men. Um, now, somebody might say, well, "What about Priscilla and Aquila?" Right. Well, uh, Priscilla, if you if you look at the text, I think it's Acts 18 or 19. She took Apollos with her husband. With her husband, yeah. It's into not just her, home. her. Yeah. She took him into her home, and then they together gave instruction. But that anecdote 
That does not therefore mean that God made women to generally and normally go out into the world and fearlessly proclaim truth in the same way that he calls men to. I think... Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm envisioning misunderstanding here because I don't, I don't want to give the idea or the impression that it's like, well, women are just to be, you know, uh, silent in, the, in, every, in every aspect and never speak truth. What we're saying is like there is a, there is a calling placed upon a man who is an elder, who is a pastor in a church to guard the deposit, to proclaim the truth, to reprove, rebuke, correct, exhort. That is his calling. That is his duty. If he fails to do so, he is failing in his duty. That is a masculine calling. It is not in the nature of women uh, normatively to be that, to, to do that. There may be some women who have a more aggressive disposition and who are more vocal in speaking truth. I know some, I've got one in mind now, but I won't mention her by name. But I can think of women that do that. And is it know, Joy Behar from The View? I don't know. That I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say her name, but um, somebody that I I respect. Right. I respect because there is when a woman does it, there is a oh, this this. I don't want to get into the weeds on this too much, but I'll just say it this way. Um, there is there is a sense in which when a woman speaks truth boldly, it stands out because it is unique. Right, and that I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, so that it, it uh, that is not a bad thing. If that became the normative thing, correct? Then we we have then the, there's a problem, and I think a lot of times the women do it because the men aren't doing it. I think that happens for sure, and I also think. Uh, because of feminism incentivizing women being masculine and adopting masculine traits, it now seems virtuous to do it. But I guess here's the way I would put it, and then we can we can move on because I don't I don't want to you know belabor the point here. I, I hope you I hope you get what we're what we're driving at. But let me just say it this way: it is not arbitrary, and it's not a mere concession to social custom that most of the prophets God called were men. Yeah. And all of the ones who wrote books of the Bible were men. That was not God like merely conceding something to social. He he called a woman prophet or two. Isaiah's wife comes to mind. Um, prophetesses in the New Testament, right. which is it's not the same. It's not the text. same. But so you you see, God's God's not really afraid of you know ticking off the ancient world by once in a while calling a woman prophet. So why is it that the vast majority are men? And I'm saying. Take the Bible at face value, read it Genesis to Revelation, and tell me you're not seeing that there are different kinds of virtues and different patterns of life that God wants men as men to exhibit and women as women to exhibit. The exceptions prove the rule. They don't yeah. disregard the rule. Yeah. So there you go. Um, well, I, uh, that, that dovetails into the theses. The, the theses, okay. I, I jotted these down this morning. Um I was thinking, like, what would I assert? Um, and this is not exhaustive. I mean, this this is a this is a sketch. But these are ten. I, I stopped at ten. I, I could have kept going, but I wrote down ten theses. Um, these are all of these points are developed in my book. So there's a. If you're if you're interested in in understanding this more, these are all developed in the book, and so there's there's a resource that um, I can commend to you. But here are ten theses, and I can. How about I can uh, read them one at a time, and then 
Yeah. Uh, as I go, you can we'll respond riff on like or some not. jazz musicians. Yeah. All right. So this is jazz. This is not uh, rote. Right. This theater. is not a classical symphony. <laughs> All right. Thesis number one God created two and only two sexes. So if I can jump in real quick, I have grown to hate the word gender. And I'm guessing, we didn't even talk about these, but I'm guessing you use the word sexes intentionally yes. as opposed to gender. Uh, the word gender is anymore, it really connotes like this sort of spectrum. You know, it's kind of like if you Google blue or shades of blue, it'll give you like 5,000 mm-hmm. different shades of blue. And, you know, that's how gender, gender connotes now in the modern American mind, this idea spectrum. of, right. It, that's not a thing. That's, yeah. There is no spectrum here. God created male and female. And anything that you're doing in between these two, you know, fixed north and south locations is fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, Amen. total agreement. Yeah. Would you say, if I, do you oppose the use of gender? No, I don't think it's like sinful to use the word, but I am, this is just, you listen I to me. I agree like with you, you. Listen to me like you would a, a brother, you know, like a brother at the dining room table. Here's Here's your brother telling you what he's doing. I am slowly weeding that word out of my vocabulary. And one one thing that kind of made me think that this would be a good idea for me to do. I'm not putting this burden on anybody else. But I remember that as a kid, I used to watch like All in the Family with my dad. I don't know if you ever saw that show, but it's like a super politically incorrect show. And I remember some of the gay and lesbian and transvestite sort of topics coming up in the show. And transvestite would have been the word. And transsexual would have been the word. Not transgender. Hmm. And I, I, I had that thought, like, man, the word transgender really is almost kind of catechizing me into, even though I know it's sinful for a guy to pretend to be a woman, it is kind of like making me think this in some way is a spectrum. Yeah. When in reality, transvestite was a little more clear, like, it's a dude wearing a dress. <laughs> he may need therapy, he may need right. a jail cell, he may need any number of things, but it's a dude wearing a dress. It's yeah. not a transgender well like sex locates the the reality we're describing within the body yeah gender locates the reality that we're talking about within the mind much better way to say it than i did yeah that's I'll, great i was just thinking about it. and that that dovetails into thesis number two sex encompasses the whole person body and nature um I could say body and spirit, body and soul. There's a number of ways to say it, but body and nature. And what I mean is, if you're a, if you're a physically a male, you have a masculine nature. Right. Your your soul, everything about you spiritually, the inside of you is masculine. If the outside of you is right. masculine, there's not some androgynous core that God, you know, zipped up this masculine body around. And someday, thankfully, that, that suit's going to fall off and decompose, and you'll be back to being your androgynous ghost self in eternity. Yeah. You know what? I just remembered that that was one of the theses I meant to put down, and I didn't. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I don't see it. Here, but the, another thing I would add to this is that um, sex is eternal. Yes. You're going to be a man for eternity. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like whenever whenever the, Jesus comes back, we all go to heaven. It's like we're all androgynous. Um, and if you do this right, like the way I tell it to my kid, I got three boys, three girls. So I'm, I'm, I've got a real, you know, even setup here. I'm constantly trying to make sure they know that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a happy thing. 
you get to be a woman forever. And yeah. God loves womanhood. And you get to be a man forever. And God loves manhood. Yeah. Like, that's a happy... You get to perfect this thing right. for eternity. It'll be, it'll be fully sanctified and will increase from one glory to the, to the next forever. Right. right. And that's... God knew what he was doing and wisely, intentionally, even before the sin of Genesis 3, when the world was still perfect, mm-hmm. uh, God made these two sexes and these two, and, and, and mentions it very prominently in the text, male and female, he made them as though like, yeah. this is a big deal here. Yeah. That's Genesis one twenty seven, And I dare say, you know, this is a little speculative, but I dare say like, that's one of the, um... That is something that we have that angels don't in at least a particular way that I think is meaningful. They are neither given in marriage, uh, you know, nor have children. But I also think the whole masculine, feminine nature thing, God mentions it very prominently with us, and he doesn't bring it up with the angelic host that he created. Hmm. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think they're, you know, like indiscernibly just vague shapes or something. But I do think something about masculine and feminine natures appears to me to be uh, an expressly human feature. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point. Um, I I do want to point out that the Genesis two seven is the text here. Okay. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Mm -hmm. The word living creature there, um, it means soul. Mm. So he created a body, breathed air into his body Mm -hmm. and he became a living soul. There's a, he is, he is not the soul of the man is not, um, separable from the body of the man. Um, all right, number three, God gives each sex different aptitudes, dispositions, and duties. So different aptitudes, dispositions, and duties are assigned to each sex. Okay, so let me let me hone in on the duties part for a second. I think one of the suicidal, self-destructive things that we're doing in the West right now is we are demanding to assign to ourselves our own responsibilities and like recreate ourselves in our own image. Mm, yes. So I don't I don't owe anybody anything by virtue of my womanhood and I don't owe anybody anything by virtue of my manhood and I don't owe anybody anything by virtue of the fact that I'm a child. Yeah. Um and that it's, is It's it's expressive individualism yeah. is what Carl Truman called it. Yeah. But it's like what the way that we perceive our personhood is something that needs to be expressed because I am the center of it. I am the creator of it. I get to dictate the terms of it. And I'm going to express it how I want. The givenness of all of these things is increasingly minimized or denied. Yeah, it's in like every Disney movie. And while obviously it's narcissistic and obviously it's obnoxious and obviously you wouldn't want to sit next to somebody on a bus like that, I'm, I would actually plead with the person who's adopting that worldview. It's actually bad for you too. Yeah. You're, you're defying the God who actually made you. You can pretend like you can be whatever you want. Yeah. But I'm telling you, you can't. He made you a woman with a womb. He made you a certain way, or he made you a man with a certain muscle mass. And that may not mean that he grants you, woman in question, children yourself. And it may not mean you, man in question, he grants you some inherently masculine profession. But it does mean something. Yeah. There, he has made you intentionally. And to act like that has absolutely nothing to do 
with your vocation or with your calling or with the way you should think or with what you owe to society. To act like it has absolutely is self-destructive. You're yeah. going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we're not saying, we're not like prescribing at this point, like what those duties are. Right. But I think the minimal thing that I think anybody, any Christian should be able to immediately acknowledge and affirm is that it means something. Exactly. That's what the epistles, when Paul says, um, here's how you enroll widows, right? Mm -hmm. He he doesn't know every single widow, but he says, like, here's generally what it should be. She should have washed the feet of the saints. She should have, like, he has these, he can say without knowing every single widow, here's the general pattern here. And he can mm -hmm. say, this is why I would have younger widows marry, because otherwise they're going to be busybodies and gossips going around from house to house, stirring things up. He can have these general principles because he knows God made women and men a particular way. And Timothy at your church in Ephesus, Titus at your church in Crete, you're going to have two kinds of humans, women and men. Yeah. And I may not know every Jane and I may not know every John, mm -hmm. but I know what women and men are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're right. We don't, we can't prescribe every single duty and we certainly understand there are going to be um, different wrinkles here in a fallen world. Yeah. Um, well, the battle, the thing that I would fight for, the battle I want to wage is that it means something. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I have thoughts, I have many thoughts about what it means. And, but those are areas that I think there can be some, some divergent um, opinions. But what we're seeing is, is people denying that there really is anything inherently exactly. womanly or manly about the way we should live, about our obedience. Exactly. Um, they when, would say, because you're a woman, you're supposed to, there's nothing you could put at the end of that sentence. Right. That's their argument. Their argument is there's nothing you could put at the end of that sentence. And our right now, we're basically saying something is going to go at the end of that yeah. sentence. Let's not even say what yet. Yeah. Because I'm a man, I'm supposed to blank. Something's supposed to go in the end of that yeah. sentence. So hang, hang with us, listener, because I, we'll get to, I think there's a cheat code about how to, like what we think is a, is a wisdom application of what goes at the end of that sentence. We'll get there in a moment. Yeah. All right. Here's number four. God created the sexes to be interdependent. Interdependent, meaning they need each other, which is definitely what Paul says in Corinthians. Um, right? Uh, not, essentially, woman was created to be the glory of man, but now all of us are born. No man has come apart yeah. from a woman. So it's First like, Corinthians 11. Right. So, so every the, man comes from a woman. Right. Uh, the first woman came from a man. Everybody comes from God. So there is that there there is an interdependence. Nobody is. I, God said to Adam, "It's not good you're alone." Right. So the, God was not just talking about a loneliness thing. Adam looks a little sad and forlorn. Hey, I'll create a woman to go with him. No, God created woman because there was a duty God called him to that he could not fulfill without a woman who was able to bear the children God called him to to uh, populate the earth with. Right. The world would be an impoverished world if it had only men. Absolutely. And the world would be an equally impoverished world, though impoverished in a different way, if it had only women. Yeah. Yeah. So they're interdependent. Here's number five. This interdependence is... I can't read my own handwriting. Uh, so I, I wrote these out on a whiteboard, and then I took a picture Ref of it. Reflected. Reflected, yeah. I can read your handwriting better than you. <laughs> reflected. Well, in. it's like I printed it on a yeah. printer because I didn't have time to type it up. All right. So I'm reading off my handout here. Um, the, this interdependence is reflected in household relationships. 
Um, so here's what I'm getting at. Um, when we see marriage as the paradigmatic way that the sexes relate, we're missing a lot. And it it impoverishes the church and our relationships because there are multiple ways that men and women can and should relate to one another as men and women other than the marriage. So the marriage, husband and wife, that's one, but there's four pairs, husband and wife, mother and father, brother and sister, son and daughter. So your point there being, um, if you if you narrow down what manhood is to only husband as the archetype, then you're going to be losing a lot of what manhood is because manhood is also described in the Bible in terms of fatherhood and sonship yeah. and brotherhood. Yeah. And all of those are, all of those are, there's plenty of texts. Right. I, one thing I, I preached this past Sunday for Father's Day and I was in- It's a great sermon. Thank you. I was in um, Nehemiah and one of the things that always strikes me in Ezra and Nehemiah is how much they refer to their past- family trees as the fathers, our fathers, Mm -hmm. our fathers sinned, our fathers did this, our fathers were sent away in exile, our fathers, and they're not talking about like literally their dads. It's like a shorthand for all of the spiritual heritage and family heritage behind me. Mm -hmm. And it's, I love that, that language gives me, like even right now I'm getting chills thinking (laughs) about it because I... Uh, I was showing my my kids some pictures of their great grandfather in World War II, and I was like, in a way, he's your father. Yeah, I mean, I'm your father, but he's your father. Like this is yeah. the godly men who went ahead of you are your fathers. Yeah, two generations from now, if Christ the King's still here, you're going to be you, Michael Clary, are going to be a father in a sense to the pastor who's here in 2130, yeah. Lord willing. Yeah. Two, two thoughts on that. One is when we narrow it down to just the husband and wife, you end up with things like every woman should submit to every man. Right. Um, and so that's, no, like in the church, it's like there, there is no command for women to submit to men in general. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a wife to her husband. It is the church body, including men and women, to their elders. Second comment is that um, I, thought, I was thinking of this while you're talking about fatherhood. Um, even the language about the way we refer to corporate bodies of people. Yeah. Um, when you talk about the fathers, yeah, you're thinking about something that indicates a headship and a direction. Yeah. If you say um, you are of your father, the devil, that means mm-hmm. you sin like mm-hmm. um, Satan sinned. Yeah. You act like him. You're following his lead. Um, but if you're talking about a group of people corporately in a feminine sense, which is more the convention. Um, like the church is the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. You're, you're speaking more generally speaking that is including everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's what women do. Women are great at including. They bring people in. Fathers, uh, they lead, they assert, they, they provide headship. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the, in the way that we talk about corporate bodies of people, there is a masculine flavor and a feminine... The, the, the word that you use does color... The, the the metaphor in some way. And I think intentionally. There is like a... It, I, I haven't really given a ton of thought to why I do it. I think I just picked it up from uh, old, you know, 19th century habits. I like old books. But I refer to America with the pronoun her a lot when yeah. I'm writing. I'll say that, you know, America's not living up to her potential instead yeah. of its. And I think that's actually... that That's about right. Um, yeah. Like there is a... There, It'd be interesting to kind of trace the... The etymology of that, of the usage of those words. Yeah. But because I, it, you do the same thing with like a ship. 
Yeah, that's it's exactly like, oh, right. She's a beauty. We're right. going to send her out. And a captain would be offended if you called his ship an it. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a like, she. No, it's a this she. Is... It's like, it's a personal, it's like he has a relationship and he is captaining. He is leading, steering mm-hmm. this ship and, and all the people are included within it. Yeah. Um, I do think that there's, there's something there. Masculine and feminine pronouns when used corporately like that, they do give honor. They give honor, yeah. and I think they give a particular kind of honor. There's a flavor to masculine honor. These are my founding fathers, yeah. and there's a particular flavor to feminine honor. Um, this ship is like our mother. Yeah, the Jerusalem above. She is our mother. Right. Yeah. Galatians. Um, there, there is a there's a particular taste to masculine and feminine honor, and when you androgenize the world, just you're taking it. away all that taste. All that yeah. taste is gone now. Yeah. It's a it's a more bland world. Yeah, I've I've wondered how these, when you have an inflected language like Spanish mm-hmm. or something, um, I haven't I have no idea how this stuff is playing out and how even the linguistic things are are being dealt with yeah. in Spanish speaking countries or areas. But it is something. It's like you your your ability to communicate starts to break down. Um, and I would hope most that of Latin, <laughs> Latin America is too sane to to buy into that crap. No, we can, one can hope. Yeah. All right, that was five. Here's number six. Each sex is tethered to the purpose for which they were created. Well, we were all made to glorify God, Michael. That's my purpose. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, there were... um, There are... uh, Which is true, by the way. I'm not saying we weren't made to glorify God. I'm just... I'm, I'm... I'm saying that stupidly because I'm like, yeah. we know you were made to glorify God as a man. Right. And she was made to glorify God. And the, in point eight, well, I'll talk about what that means. But for this point, I, I've heard people say things. We may have, I'm, we've probably talked about this on this podcast before, but there's no masculine fruit of the spirit. There's no feminine fruit of the spirit, um, which that's true, but right. that doesn't really argue for anything. Because if God wanted a world populated with only men or only women, he could have done so. Exactly. Um, so why did God create two different kinds of human? Well, he wanted them to procreate. That's the means through which he populates the world. Um, and then there are commands given to men and commands given to women. There are virtues ascribed uh, to both, mm-hmm. uh, certain certain sinful uh, temptations. And so there, because of that, it's like there is a, there is a tethering. Um, so it's like I don't have unlimited range of what I can do uh, or what virtue looks like for me. So um, I, I, it would not be appropriate or good for me to look to a mother and be like, I'm going to embody and pursue all of the virtuous things I see in this mother and pursue those for myself right. because I am tethered to my masculinity. Right. And so I might have some... There's overlap. Doesn't mean that she couldn't teach you something about honesty or something. Sure. But yeah. she is not or your Or even archetype. nurturing. Right. Even something that is... More feminine. More feminine. Um, but the... So I, one of the examples that I, that I think of with this is like some people will say like, well, I've seen men that are great at nurturing. Um, and I think, well, that that proves the point. That right. doesn't disprove the point. Right. If you have... If you, um, Why man, did you even notice them? <laughs> Right. You're the one saying it. You're like, <laughs> you know, why did they why did they stick out to you? Yeah. Or imagine like The Rock, uh, Dwayne Johnson, you know, imagine him cuddling this tiny little infant child. I mean, that would that would stand out because right. you see, you know, some 
huge, swole, masculine specimen right. of a dude cuddling a child. The and if you say, well, look, he's nurturing, he's feminine. I'm like, no, the fact that he is nurturing highlights his masculinity. Exactly. And so the so we are tethered, and there there can be overlap, but we we can't just freely. Uh, I, so I thought of a I thought I thought of a meme. Uh, I'm, I've never made memes, I'm not, mm. but, I, but the meme I have in mind is like someone I, else is going to make it now. No, it's no, a tetherball. Yeah, listener, if somebody's good at meme making, uh, please make this meme and send it to me. I'd love to see it. But imagine tetherball. If you know the tetherball, mm-hmm. you got the pole on the ground and a rope and then a ball. Um, and so I'm picturing two tetherball sets side by side, and you got the balls that can that can mm. go around and hit them. the The ball itself is the individual man or the individual woman. The the pole is fatherhood or motherhood. And then masculinity and femininity is the rope. Mm. So as a man, my masculinity is tethered to the purpose for which I was created, which is ultimately reproduction, that's fatherhood. So fatherhood tethers me to my masculinity. That doesn't mean that I don't have range where my rope might swing out over towards the feminine side right. somewhat. It's like, I can be nurturing. I can be, you know, right. sensitive and caring like like women are more apt to be, but I'm tethered to my masculinity. Nor would it mean that pull would disappear had you not been able to have children, had your sperm count been too low or Correct. something. Correct. Because the, you are, the virtue is still in the shape of fatherhood and you were still made a man because at the beginning, Adam was made to be a father yeah. and he's called our first father. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, and t- Paul, who never had biological children, right. calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Right. So yeah. fatherhood is the shape of the virtue, yeah. whether you have or how many you have uh, biological children you have. Yeah. So I think like I would tell any young man, let's say a 15 year old young man uh, in my church, I would tell him, you need to start acting like a father. Right. Look at the best dads in this church. Follow their lead. They can show you what being a man is all about. Don't look at the dude who's all beefed up from going to the exactly. gym. Exactly. Now, men, take care of your body. Right. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that isn't what it means. That is not the core of masculinity. Fatherhood is the core of masculinity. And a lot of time, that's a silly... Uh, the guy doing that is a silly caricature in a lot of ways. Yeah. And m- most of us who are 35 plus or have a few kids or have been through a few things, we, we roll our eyes internally or externally yeah. when we see like the 20-something dude who's like jacked and all he can talk about is, you know, his protein shake or whatever like <laughs> dude you need to you need to like get married and have some kids and have like some real masculine yeah. trials because um, men take responsibility exactly like that's a fatherhood one quick thing and then i know we got to zip to the next one i so my narrow complementarian brothers i love you and sisters i love you but i think you're wrong about gender about about sex about manhood and womanhood and here's what i see when narrow complementarians the people who say that really the only place that this stuff plays out is in the church with eldership and in the home where the husband is the head of the wife and everywhere else it's all bets are off and we can't say anything about whether or not it'd be good for a woman to see to be a ceo or something where you're missing the mark my narrow complementarian friends you have turned manhood and womanhood into basically we're all odd numbers and even numbers and that's Mm -hmm. it there's the fact that i'm an odd number or i'm an even number the fact that i'm a man or a woman really has no bearing in my nature it's just that means that in this one environment, church, and in this other one environment, marriage, we have yeah. roles to play. No, that's not how the Bible casts it. 
manhood and womanhood are much more a part of who we are and what we're called to yeah. than merely these two arbitrary little hollowed out yeah. rooms. It touches every part it of your It touches life. every part. Yeah. Okay, here is number seven. Um, exceptions, such as intersex, are the result of the fall and do not negate the above principles. So somebody's born um, with, and this is a tragedy, but somebody's yeah. born with uh, like, both, amb- both genitals or something. Yeah, ambiguous genitalia right. in some way. Um, there, there could be like, well, what about some woman who's just, her disposition is naturally, you know, more assertive, more aggressive, right. thing, things of that sort. Um, that, that could be, uh, we're, we're talking about range here, um, but that's, I guess that's, that's not really what we're getting at here. We're, here talk- we're getting at like the physical. We're getting at, yeah, more of a physical. So uh, scratch that I just said. That. So, so, but like literally if, and this is pretty rare, but literally if, a, if somebody were born, I don't quite know how it works, but if somebody's born with, like you said, not easy to discern male or female genitalia, yeah. that does not mean that God does not make people male and female and yeah. only male and female. Yeah, there. I know of a case where uh, somebody has um, XY chromosomes, so genetically male, mm-hmm. but otherwise female. Mm. Um, and that though that's a hard case, right? Um, but hard cases make bad law, right? So we're not that it doesn't overturn the rule. It is a it is a result of the fall. Okay, number eight. Virtue corresponds to design. We've already we've already covered this when we talked about being tethered, um, but just to put a fine point on it, virtue corresponds to design. So I would say, masculine virtue is fatherly, and feminine virtue is motherly. So a ma- a virtuous man and a virtuous woman will look discernibly distinct. Yeah, they will both resemble their heavenly Father. Virtue requires knowing the God who actually made you and who is the God of virtue. They'll resemble their Heavenly Father, but they will look discernibly distinct. They will not be identical. Distinct from one another. From one another. They, yeah. will, they will look discernibly distinct from one another. A, um, and this is where our 21st century American brains freak out is when you start trying to, to say hi, you know, or say how, like the, the masculine man, virtuous man, is going to be more courageous, is going to be more um, uh, ready to take on conflict, is going to be more... Um, bold is mm-hmm. is going to take leadership and use exercise authority more, and the virtuous woman is going to be more gentle, is going yeah. to be more nurturing of life and nourishing of life. The second you start using generalities like that, everybody starts coming up with the exceptions. And yeah, so. well, uh, because we want prescriptive answers. Yeah, and we want prescriptive answers because we don't want to think, we don't want to reflect. We want just tell me what to do. And I think the the clearest case against that being the way we should approach Scripture is 1 Timothy 2.12. 1 Timothy 2.12 clearly says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, followed by an entire chapter about the qualifications for elders. So right. he's talking about a church office. But even when God tells us exactly what to do, we, st- we still disobey it. <laughs> so it, it doesn't matter right. if, if God, even when God tells us exactly what to do, we still are hard-hearted and right. stubborn and rebellious and we resist it. So virtue, it, it, it begins with the prescriptive commands, but wisdom is reflecting, what, and that's what, that's what this whole podcast is about, and that's why my Twitter post blew up with all kinds of people right. being angry. It's because we, 
because there people want a proof text, or even when there is a proof text, there's somebody that will Greek this and Hebrew that and, right. and eliminate its meaning. But we're saying this is what wisdom looks like. We have to walk in wisdom. We have to think about, reflect on God. What does virtuous masculinity look like for me? Right. And it's going to be fatherly. I can. I think I can make. I can make a case from Scripture for that. But what does fatherliness look like in my job, in my life, in my church, in my set of circumstances, uh, in my neighborhood? That's going to take loads of wisdom. And a godly man will say, I'm going to do that not as an androgynous, generic Christian person, right? but I want to say, I am a man in these places, and I'm going to act manly and fatherly in these places because that's what is needed from me. And from my wife and from the women around me, they need womanly virtue, feminine virtue brought to those. And together, we express the broader range of virtue that Christians are called to be. Yeah. The Apostle Paul, who can say to the Corinthians, without blushing, act like men. That same Apostle Paul, he is going to come into our churches, and if he's, you know, fluent in 21st century dress and social norms and like what, what the expectations are culturally, he's going to be able to call out a young man for being effeminate, for acting effeminately. Yeah. And the second he does it, all of us are going to start, we're, what about? What do you mean? Right, exactly. What do you... Did you not read my letter to the Corinthians? I told people to act like men. I know what manhood and womanhood are. So your your exceptions and your whataboutisms do mm-hmm. not undermine, do not undo the fact that God has made manhood as a concrete reality. Yeah. And it may manifest itself in differently in different times and places, but it's a real thing. Yeah. And so is womanhood. So that dude crossing his legs and wearing a purse and, you know, kind of <laughs> having his wrist limp, like it does mean something yeah. in 21st century America and he should stop doing it. Yeah. And that's, I, I remember, so this this is where I personally have, I've, I've had to come along because um, Tim Bailey is a pastor that you and I both have mm-hmm. have respect for. He's wrote, written the book, The Grace of Shame, yeah. Daddy Tried. Uh Loads of respect for him. Love him. He's been a a father figure in the faith and as a pastor to Mm -hmm. me. So respect for Tim. Um, I have seen him say things online, and I've heard him say things in person that I I hated it. I I would hang out with him. Uh, I remember going to visit with him once, and he was talking about, what's up with that? That dude, he's gay. Yeah. Um, And I was thinking like, and and I had not been in that environment. Yeah. And so I was thinking, are you saying this man's a homosexual? And in your prim, proper, internal right. voice. Uh, and, and I was like, I was just kind of freaking out on the inside. And what he was saying is like, he was effeminate. Right. He he acts in a way. And then I was like, what, what do you mean? What, what's wrong with being feminine? Right. Show me your show me your verse there, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? It's like, <laughs> and I know you didn't say that out loud. I know, but but well, it is funny. We both did. The, <laughs> I mean, like we yeah, we both shared this. Sort yeah. Of. Wade and I've been on a similar trajectory for a while. I, I can I can remember the example. They were talking about a young man that was coming to the church, and um, they had you know built a relationship with him, were pastoring him, caring for him, you know, helping him to grow. Um, but he was a guy that was fatherless, didn't really have a lot of guidance in his life, and he had really long hair. And it wasn't like, you know, I'm, you know, William Wallace. And, right. You know, right. Um, um, but it was just like, they said, like, he loved his hair. And it was, it was clearly something that was a point of pride for him and vanity. And, um, you know, they're, 
they, the, it's not like they just go yell at guys, go get your haircut or whatever. But for this guy, they could tell his hair is a symbol for him of, uh, of vanity and pride. And so right. they just told him, said, listen, man, like this thing that you're doing with your hair is vain and you should cut it off. Now that's, they might, you know, you might quote first Corinthians 11 or something like that, right. but even in other areas where you don't have a, a particular verse, if people, it, it, let's say a church community values this sort of virtuous life mm-hmm. that we're talking about and, the, and we get what we're talking about, then you can start using shorthand and we can speak to the, the subtleties that are that don't have a proof text. Right. This is what narrow complementarians miss. Right. It's so frustrating because they're like, if you don't have a specific Bible verse, then you it, it doesn't matter. And so you're you're hurting your people. You are not helping men to live as men. When you narrow it down, that you know, it's gotta yeah. be this this thin, thin, thin slice of life. Yeah. And everything else is up for grabs. And the flip side of that, I mean, so so here's this guy, but how many of our churches have women? who do not understand, or maybe do understand and are rebelling, but they're acting masculine. Mm -hmm. You're not helping them by ignoring it or overlooking it or saying, well, since I don't have an exact verse on not, you know, dressing and and standing this particular way, I'm just gonna... Yeah. You're not helping that woman. In... I want to speculate here. So so let me see if you have the same perspective as, as this. It seems as though there is still some vestige where men can do that to one another, yeah. but you can't do it with women. Yeah, that's 100% right. So you could call a dude out on, if there were a guy here in this church, and he were wearing a bag that looked a little like a purse, and he was, you know, crossing his legs all the time and kind of w- wiggling his foot and just sort of, you know, I'm, you can't see me, this is a podcast, but like I'm holding <laughs> up my lip, my, my wrist and my lips, and I'm just kind of like... You know, this kind of dainty. Exactly. And, yeah. You could you could call that dude out in most churches, most evangelical churches, with enough good guys, good strong men, even a regular you know just promise keeper type, yeah, sort of ministry <laughs> going on. A guy could be like, "Hey, bud, hey, dude, come here. You need to stop that." Yeah. But if there's a woman who is wearing you know particular kind of jeans, particular kind of shirt, always sort of the posture is is very masculine, mm-hmm. uh, kind of talks in a masculine way. You can't say anything. Nobody can say anything. And if you did, you have just committed a You're a misogynist. Violence. You're a misogynist. Yeah. When the, the great irony is you actually love women, love womanhood, and love this woman and want her to exhibit yeah. femininity. Yeah. And and the thing is like there's it it's it it's all it, it's all in this nebulous area that we, we would just say wisdom. Right. When I say nebulous, that 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 implies it isn't clear. I I would I would say less that it's not clear and more that it is it's intuitive. It's yeah. like you you know it, and the th- and that's the thing. It requires touch and feel. Let me just say this, and and I don't mean to be offensive, but uh, the gaydar is a thing. Yes. And when we say gaydar, it's kind of a joke, um, but but it, it's a thing. It's real. It's like you can look at a guy and you can see how he's behaving, and you can sense there's something effeminate about this man, and 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 yes. And even men in the LGBTQ world who think we're dead they wrong, and they would say, yeah, they we got gaydar's real. Like, we yeah, can tell. They totally know it. And so there's a, I don't know what the feminine equivalent of that would be. Right. I, I, but it's like, you can just tell when somebody is trying, there, there's, some, there's some discomfort with right. their masculinity or with their femininity. And pastors that love people, and, and don't get us wrong, it's, it's not like we're going around smacking people. No, for, no, it, no. It's something that 
it, it's a tell that gives us insight into like that that's something I want to pay attention to. And there have been on occasion, it's not common, but there have been occasion when I would talk to a man and and just say, hey, what's going on here? I, I, I see something here. Do you um, are you attracted to other men? Um, is there some like, is there something that you're watching? And it's always gentle. It's always loving. It, it is always bathed in grace. Yeah. But I want to help the man. Right. Um, yeah. So you love if you love men and women. If you love men and women as men and women, made by God that way, you're going to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And if you don't have them, then you're either aberrant in your doctrine, or you don't actually love them as much as you love. Yeah. People thinking you're sweet. Yeah. All right. We have two more. All right. Um, all right, I'm, I want to just squish these together okay. because um, when I jotted these down, I think these might fit a little bit better earlier in the list. Okay. So I'll just mention these and then see if you have a comment. Number nine, God's design is written into the created order, so obedience is from the beginning. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at there is whenever Jesus was asked about divorce, right. he didn't go straight to the Moses passage in uh, Deuteronomy, he went back to the beginning. He right. said, look at God's design as it was created, therefore, uh, and then he he taught from there. So you you go back to the beginning. Paul did the same thing mm-hmm. in, first, in uh, first Timothy 2 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, you you uh, Virtue and design, you look at these things from the beginning. Number 10, God's design is observable in nature and implies some moral obligation. That's exactly right which is why Jesus can make a divorce argument from a historical Adam and a historical Eve. He can say, because God made this man from the dirt and then made a woman from his side, because God did that, you all shouldn't get divorced. Yeah, right. I mean, so he's, he's giving you a duty and you an obligation based on the fact that God made a man and a woman for a particular purpose. Yeah. So does it have no other? Does it have zero other implications? No, obviously it does. The same thing could be said. So, I mean, my boys should conduct themselves a certain way because they are made in the image of God through Adam. They are made in the likeness of Adam. And that means something for how they're supposed to act. Yeah. Same thing for my girls in the shape of Eve. Amen. Okay. Do we want to, uh, do we have time for a listener question? Uh, Yes, I think we do. Um, So let's... This is not going to be so much on the uh, the topic of today, but I think it's an interesting one. So we got this sent in. I think you can say the name. Okay. Sometimes you obscure the name, like, but I think people that send it in, they... Joe Sell sent this in. I don't know Joe. Um, I, I don't think he knows us, does he? No. I, I, I don't know Joe, okay. um, but I appreciate his question. Yeah. It, was, it, it's, was it was well thought out. Um so I'm going to kind of read a little bit. It's a, it's a long-winded question, which I really appreciate. I appreciate when somebody takes the time to think through what they want to say accurately. So I'm going to kind of pick and choose here from some of what he wrote. But um, what is the correct application of some of the scriptures that the sort of more winsome neutral public square, mm-hmm. I might say squishy sort of folks would use to justify their thoughts, to justify their uh, let's approach the world and perhaps government and the public square type stuff with more kid gloves or yeah. uh, less less uh, combative and forceful of a of a rhetoric. And he and he brings up First Peter eight two eighteen through twenty three, sort of thinking for them, and Matthew five forty four. Now let me read First Peter two eighteen through twenty three. Uh, 
The Apostle Peter writes this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So I think kind of trying to do those people's thinking for them, saying, hey, look, Christ Mm -hmm. was meek, gentle, and speechless in this in this uh, arena here of his crucifixion. The apostle Peter calls slaves to do the same thing to their masters when they're unjust towards them. So isn't it possible these guys would have a point and that really we should approach the public square with with a a, uh, a speechless sort of ministry uh, or a toned down sort of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So we can start answering <clears throat> that. What do you think? Um couple of thoughts. I think the my beef with winsomeness in is that it is often associated with virtues that I would agree with, but it is mislabeled and misapplied. So should we be uh, gracious with our speech? Should we be uh, respectful of authority? Should we honor authority, even sinful authority? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, and so therefore, what is what is taken what, what that is often meant to be is that, well, g- being gracious with your speech and respectful and honoring authority means you are not supposed to speak on anything that would cause the other person to be offended. Right. And the, it, it basically, sa- it, it turns the idea of the virtues that we see in Scripture of honoring authority and makes it never offend, never say anything that might rub them the wrong way. I think that there is a... I can think of other examples. You know, Paul um, was very harsh with the high priest because he didn't recognize him. He said, I'll uh, strike you, you whitewashed wall, or whatever yeah. it was, something right. like that. And then he said, oh, I didn't know that was the high priest. Right. And so he he, he changed. Um, I tweeted this uh, at the president. So I quote tweeted him. Uh-huh. So it went to the POTUS account. Um, whenever he lit up the White House in a pride rainbow, and I said, Mr. President, this is godless and uh, sinful. You should repent. Correct. Um, and I, I I spoke respectfully because mm-hmm. I'm not talking to some Twitter troll. I'm talking to the president of the United States. And even though I have big problems with the occupant of the, the mm-hmm. Oval Office, um, the office itself is worthy of respect. Nevertheless, I'm not going to shrink back from speaking truth to whomever that would be. What what has happened with the winsomeness idea is that it becomes this blanket prohibition of ever saying anything that somebody might take offense to. And in a hypersensitive culture, people are offended at everything, right. which means, Christian, the only thing you should ever do is be faithfully present and keep your mouth shut. Don't say a word and nobody will be offended at you. And then you'll be thought virtuous. I think that that is unfaithful to what we're called to be as truth tellers, truth speakers. John the Baptist got beheaded Mm -hmm. for condemning Herod for having his brother's wife. So he had no problem speaking truth to an authority figure 
such that he was very offended to the point of right. killing him. So and the Peter who wrote this letter ends up being martyred himself. Right. Um, 100%. So the, the same apostles who commend meekness and the same Jesus who commends meekness themselves also were bold proclaimers of the truth. So the two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's not like we have to be merely Mr. Rogers all the time. Yeah. Because the apostles were not. Correct. So meekness must not mean a completely vanilla man who will never say anything that will offend anyone. Because yeah. all of the apostles who commend meekness were not like that. One one thing that comes to mind as he's quoting First Peter, or as he's imagining that they might use First Peter in that particular passage, the the servant, the slave there, the doulos in that passage was submitting to someone who had actual authority over him. So there was a, a real... Of, uh, when we step out into the public square, my neighbor is not my master in the way that mm-hmm. this First Peter 2 passage would have us understand that a doulos, his master, would have actually had some authority over him. You're my neighbor. You're my peer. And even governing authorities in our system, a democratic republic, they're not... We're not their slaves, and they're not our masters. Yeah. So keep that in mind. That passage certainly would have some application. Like we we are in some sense to be gentle and meek towards all, but I'm not called to to be the slave to my neighbor. Like I'm allowed to call him to repent of his sin. Yeah. Um. And then I think it also we we have to realize that. When the Apostle Peter, when the Apostle Paul, when they do this sort of thing, um, they are also, when given the opportunity, boldly proclaiming the truth even to people who have real authority. So the Apostle Paul does this at his arrest and at his trial before uh, Festus, I think it is. He is not afraid of proclaiming the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So even when someone does have real authority, like Joe Biden, Bold proclamation of the truth is still a Christian response. Mm-hmm. So um, he does have one thing here I think that's worth reading and getting our thoughts on. Uh, towards the end, he says, either political mobilization is on the table for Christians. So particularly here, not talking about public square ministry, not talking about us preaching the gospel, but political activity. Either political mobilization is on the table for Christians or it's not. And all the scripture about rejoicing in suffering, submitting to authority, etc., has me confused on how to approach public issues today. Should we draw a line between loving God's law within family church and trying to impose God's law outwardly? Or does doing justice include all spheres of influence and institutions? So he's asking there specifically about political activity. Yeah. Um, We addressed this in our last episode. We do, but I think in case people don't listen to it, and just because also, you know, some true things are worth saying multiple times, what do we say here about... um, engaging politically as Christians, as Christians, not merely, you know. Right. God judges people and God judges peoples. God judges nations. God judges leaders and holds them to account for something, some standard. Right. And our our view is that that standard is uh, the law of God, not uh, meaning like the, the case law of the Torah, but mm-hmm. the general equity of the law, which is like the moral law, the principles embedded, um, and to rule justly. So to the, to the extent that the Lord gives us the opportunity to, um, 
to have influence in a public life, I think we should avail ourselves of it. And we live in a the type of government where we have many opportunities to do so. And the freedom that we have, one, is a gift of God. It's it's a gift that we inhabit a, a culture that honors that Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're able to pursue justice and righteousness in public. Um, this connects back to what we were saying before. That's what fathers do. Fathers see justice. So a, a, a godly father is not just godly and just for the sake of his wife and the kids that is in his household. At least in prior generations, a godly father, you know, sees some kids, you right. know, in a scrapping yeah, down exactly at, right. the, at the Little League field. Um, he's going to step in. Mm-hmm. What's going on here, boys? No, no, you mm-hmm. can't do that. It's like he's going to right. bring justice to bear there. That and the is, world was better for it. Yes, it was. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's in the realm of good works. Mm-hmm. So it is not something that is prescribed of every Christian. This is your duty to seek office. But as a matter of good works, I think we have every freedom to do so. And as we pursue you know, any public office or any public role, we should do so knowing that we're accountable to the standards that are revealed in Scripture. That's exactly right. Um, Romans 13, 4 through 6 says that government is God's minister and his servant. It is better, in my view, and I think I, I, would, I would almost just toss it out as an axiom, <laughs> it's better for that to be explicit and acknowledged rather than implied and assumed. Yeah. Paul doesn't say in Romans 13, 4 through 6, I view the government as God's authority. He says it is. Right. Government is God's minister and servant. Well, if it really is his minister and servant, then we're not doing anybody any favors by just acting like it has just its own authority and its own standard that it can create all by itself. Let's just go ahead and say, Yahweh, the God who actually exists and whose son is Jesus Christ, you belong to him and you're his minister and servant. Yeah. Amen. And I think, there you go. Um, All right, dear listener. Well, we thank you for joining us here today. We uh, primarily focused on manhood and womanhood, so I'll circle back to that. If you're listening to this, unless you're a dog, you are a, you are a you are a human man or a human woman, and that is a beautiful thing. Uh, enjoy it. Thank God for it right now. Right now, as you're listening to me, honestly, thank God for making you a man or a woman. It's a beautiful thing. You will be it unto eternity for His glory. We pray that you do it in the new heavens and new earth with us as. A purchased son or daughter of the Most High God. If you don't yet know Jesus, repent of your sins, trust in him, and thank God that he made you a man or that he made you a woman.